My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, and good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. I'm Renan Ashkenazi from Grow Ventures, and I'm excited to host this series on winning the deal, the before and the after. Let's hear from my guest today. So hi, Wen. It's great to have you with me today. When the idea of the podcast came up, then uh, I knew you were going to be one of my first guests, and indeed you are. And for full disclosure, I've had the pleasure of talking to you about investments and investing for uh, nearly a year now, right? So I know that uh, everyone's up for a treat. And so this would be fun. There are a ton of things that I want us to talk about. And we have a history of being able to talk for a long time. So we only have 30 minutes, but our general topic is winning the deal, right? What happens before? How do you reach conviction? How fast could you do it? Whatever uh, methods or processes do you have for that? And what happens after, right? How do you make sure that you're actually bringing value to the table? But before I'm going to ask you to... Uh, to say a few words about yourself and your path into Kleiner, I wanted to start with what's really interesting, and that's how did you find yourself growing up in a jungle? <laughs> okay. You knew uh, that was coming. I, I, I didn't know, but I, I can address <laughs> it. Um, so, Renata, first of all, thank you uh, for um, hosting me on, on your talk show. Um, I think you'd be a, a great talk show host, so you have a career backup plan. If things don't go well in venture, which I think they will. So maybe the next life. But um, um, I've been at Kleiner for um, about 15 and a half years. Uh, I started literally by being the chief of staff of John Doerr, um, who many of you may know is, is a pretty uh, successful venture capitalist, and uh, basically worked my way up. And today um, I'm one of the, the three managing partners of our firm, and I run the hard tech practice. Um, the hard tech practice is embodied by things that have hardcore engineering or science. I like to say that in addition to software, it has hardware, which is often difficult for a small company to manage. It's um, hard to do, hard to do in terms of scaling in particular. And if you do it right, it's hard to copy. And the reason I don't call it frontier tech or deep tech or anything like that is because I always remind myself that the fifth criteria of hard tech is that the venturable ones are hard to find. Uh, many hard tech companies are not actually venturable. So to be able to find them and with venture dollars and venture timeframes create a successful enduring company is non-trivial. You know, we mostly invest in North America, but also um, in parts in uh, greater China, as well as in Europe. Traditionally, a, lot, a while ago, we had investments in Israel, but we're still looking. So uh, I <laughs> hope in the next few months we can find something to do together. Yeah, that's part of my job. And that's right. Um, with regards to my experience, yes, I um, I grew up in the jungle between age three and age seven. And that's because my father is an entomologist. 
uh, just for clarity, an etymologist is someone who studies words. An entomologist is someone who studies insects. So my father moved in the 70s to the middle of the Amazon jungle along the Amazon River between Belém and Manaus, for those who want to Google map it. Um, and literally, I grew up in the middle of the jungle while my father uh, studied insects there. And I left at year, year seven when I was seven years old because I, I wasn't going to school. And my parents realized that I needed an education. So we moved from the Amazon to Berkeley. You can say one jungle to another. Uh, Berkeley, <laughs> California. So uh, that's a short history of, of, uh, of my background. I want to go back for a second to, um, to your definition of Kartik because I love the way that you define it because you talk a lot about the fact that it's deep tech. There is a lot of frontier tech in there, but it also has to be investable. And I feel like a lot of investors, especially the ones, entrepreneurs as well, yeah, especially the ones that are excited about technology, forget about that part. Yeah. This was a harsh lesson that we learned at Kleiner uh, during the first Uh, green tech boom. There we threw venture dollars at many things like biofuels or electric vehicles that was very difficult to scale with venture dollars for a number of reasons. Either they were too capital intensive or um, they were competitive with a commodity like oil, which we don't control or influence for the most part as venture capitalists, or they were going up against government subsidies like Chinese solar. And the lesson learned there is, um, yes, there are rare cases where you might be successful, um, but the hurdles are against you and the barriers are against you. And more importantly, you don't control uh, many of the key variables that are important for that business's success, like the ones I've mentioned, oil prices. So what we've taken the tack now is to make sure that when we do hard tech, We remind ourselves that the venturable ones are hard to find. So, you know, in the memo, we have to see if, if, if there's a compelling case for venturableness. And then you might ask me, well, what is venturableness? I'd say that venturableness is something, a venture that can be brought to commercial traction and achieve scale with, let's say, several hundred million dollars, low, 700 million, low several million dollars of investment, right? And doesn't require multi-billion dollars or the requirement of building a brand new plant or the requirement of oil prices below $40. Right? Yeah. And within Those a reasonable time frame, right? Right. And, 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 and in, I would say, five to 10 years yeah. instead of 10 to 30. Okay, let's get to business. We're here to talk about conviction. And you and I have talked about it quite a bit. And I mean, I feel like ultimately venture is kind of like it's art and science, right? There is the, there are the, quantitative and there's the qualitative data that you can collect but in the at the end of the day you want to feel it right you want to feel conviction you want to be able to explain it and you want to be able to feel it do, do you have a framework for that I think there's you know being an ex-consultant I think there's three of everything so how can you use <laughs> frameworks for <laughs> we said the same thing in the military That's true. That's true. Uh, sometimes uh, being a, a consultant felt like in the military, especially when I'm being told what to do by a certain time frame <laughs> with no deviation from the from the ask. So, yes, I can see that being true. But um, I, I, I'd say that there are three criteria that we tend to look for. At least I, I'm only going to qualify this for hard tech because I'm, I'm not a consumer or, or an, a SaaS investor. But let's say in hard tech. 
The first, of course, is not violating any basic principles of physics or chemistry or anything, right? Because no matter how much conviction you have, um, you can't violate those rules. And, mm-hmm. and I always say, you know, even if you have a black turtleneck, you know, if you jump off a building, you still fall at 9.8 meters per second squared. <laughs> no, no matter what. So, so a valid you, point. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So you can't violate those. And there are hard tech companies that have come before us that have raised tremendous amounts of money that, in my view, neglected um, the hard wall of science or engineering. Theranos may be a, bad, a good example um, yeah. of that, right? Um, trying to do something that wasn't easily or mathematically or statistically or chemistry possible. So first of all, you want to make sure that your hubris doesn't <laughs> exceed the laws of physics or math. The second one we tend to think about is um, sort of a hierarchy of investability. The first is that the market exists because no matter how, how enthusiastic you are, it's hard for an individual VC or one small company to create a market, right? Markets have their own uh, uptake rate and maturity time frame, right? So in many technologies, if you're too early, nothing exists. If you're too late, it's too late, right? So the first is that the market exists. The number two is that the, the advantage that you think is there is sustainable, right? Because you could be very enthused. You can have a lot of conviction, but the advantage may not be enduring. I think bike sharing in China was a good example. <laughs> there were basically no barriers to entry, right? So that's the second criteria. The third is that the team really understands the market and the advantage. You know, oftentimes you have uh, people who, who have a very superficial knowledge of the industry dynamics. And I would say that biofuels is a good example. In the early days when we funded biofuel ventures, the scientists or the entrepreneurs knew the biofuels, but they didn't understand the distribution system of fuels, which ultimately <laughs> was a key part of their demise because they couldn't get their biofuels into the, the normal fuel distribution system. So entrepreneurs, the third criteria is entrepreneurs who understand the market and the advantage, whether the advantage is technical or business model or what have you. I would say the, the fourth criteria is that the terms are reasonable. Even you can have conviction and passion, but you know if you have to pay a billion dollars, well, you're going to need a $10 billion outcome to give average venture returns. So the terms should be reasonable. That's the number fourth criteria. And the fifth criteria, I would say, is the passion of, of, of the investor, particularly the sponsoring partner, because I would say you can divorce your your wife or your husband, but you can't divorce a portfolio company. So if you <laughs> sign up for it, you're in it for a 10-year haul. So you better be pretty passionate about the entrepreneur, the market, the technology, the team, and everything. So that's sort of the second bucket that I tend to look at. And remember, the first bucket was you can't violate any basic principles of science. The second one are these five criteria of investability. And the last one, I would say that is probably really important in conviction is what we call a prepared mind. There are ventures that I've been looking for for a while, for example, in robotics, mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I, I want commoditized hardware. I want a I, I, I want me I'm looking for. Right. I'm looking for uh, a, a large addressable functionality. Right. It's not a robot that just picks one thing, but can pick a variety of things. Um, I'm looking for a low cost to be able to compete with labor. I'm looking for a robot as a service, a SaaS type business model. Yeah. So if you have these criteria that you're looking for and you see the venture, it's your mind is prepared. Right. And with a prepared mind, your, 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 your velocity to conviction and even your degree of conviction will become more pronounced. And so if you, if you come with a prepared mind 
the venture to the most part satisfy the five criteria of investability and you're not violating some degree of physics and not just that it's not that you violate it it's that there's plenty of headroom to the limit so where you are today relative to the theoretical limit as governed by the laws of physics math and so forth if there's plenty of headroom that's a good thing right you you never want to invest in something that is you know 5% to the speed of light <laughs> you're not going to be able to close that very easily but if you're you know 99% to the speed of light well you're like yeah okay that might be a good shot so I, I know it's not um these aren't hard quantitative measures but i think that if taken together and and the weighting of each may different in different circumstances i think one can build a compelling case to have conviction now that said let me qualify um there's a the conviction is probably the white hat of of investing there's also a black hat which is called fomo the fear yeah. of missing out we're going to touch on the f word definitely but i just <laughs> wanted to say that you actually covered two other things that i want to talk about which were your thesis driven investment and also speed to conviction because i think there's no doubt and you you just said that that once you're so thesis driven and you specifically are very much so then of course when the right opportunity comes then it's almost you know it's almost a no brainer but speed to conviction i mean look at what happened throughout 2020 right in 2021 because it has changed right if 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 last year you could take 2 to 4 weeks to complete a deal right a competitive deal then now it's 1 to 2 weeks and that's if you're if you're lucky so how do you how do you deal with that i think it's hard to deal with um especially for bigger firms that traditionally have more process yeah. And um, you can argue whether process is good or bad, but um, I think process helps you build conviction, but process is also communication, right? It, it brings your other partners who may not have the prepared mind that one has, bring them up to speed. And, and ultimately, you know, if you make an investment, you want the firm signed up, right? Because yeah. um, that's a key part of value add. But admittedly, it's very hard. How have we dealt with the velocity a prepared mind for sure is helpful. I would say that where I've had to be in a rush, but I've still made the decision in a shorter time with similar conviction, a lot of that was helped by the prepared mind, uh, knowing what I was looking for or having spent time in the sector. I don't. I, I think that the the, the time compression to decision making um, will not favor those that are just sort of spraying and praying, right? Just yeah. sort of looking around randomly for stuff. Because they'll find it harder to get to conviction or potentially they might make bigger mistakes because they don't really understand what they're getting into. But for the prepared mind, I actually think that um, the time compression is an advantage. I also say that um, we had to change decision making. We've had to not adhere to a partner meeting schedule, which is oftentimes twice a week or once a week, and be able to go ad hoc or for certain check sizes, have fewer partners be able to weigh in to make a decision. So we've had to adapt to the times, both in process and also um, being more mentally prepared to look for things. And then maybe there's an indexing thing too, right? I mean, even in my five criteria around market, technology, people, terms, passion, maybe with time, we've relaxed the terms a bit more. We're willing to pay up. We may be indexed a bit more on the team 
mm-hmm. and the market and then believe that they'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, time compression is about compromises. And I think it can still be managed. You can still have conviction if you compromise in the right places. Yeah. And I, I fully relate to the, the to the process changes as well. Right. You, we we didn't have a choice. You had to change the way the decision the decisions are being made. Well, you said the F word first, <laughs> and you've been it's doing like, this for a while. Letter word is uh, yeah. is 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 the worst. Look, um, with the elevated competition, the elevated valuations, a strong winner take all aspect of the different markets. I think that, and and with social media and normal media, just you know proliferating success and, you know, amplifying it everywhere, right? So it's very conscious. I think that FOMO is higher than ever. And, you know, we're all competitive, uh, whether it's with others or with ourselves. And no one wants to- I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not competitive at all. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Um, FOMO, sometimes is the negative factor driving velocity. And it can be a good thing because it is a forcing function to make a decision, but it can also be a bad thing, right? Paying up just because you don't want to miss out, but maybe the fundamentals of the team aren't quite there. So the best way to balance FOMO is really to, to, to bring on your partners to help reduce myopicness or, you know, the, the overly focus on like missing out as opposed to picking right. I think at the end of the day, picking right still trumps <laughs> missing out. But, you know, we tend to hammer ourselves on our misses more than potentially celebrating the successes. I think it's human nature. You know, talking about human nature, that brings up another question where I feel like investors are often very, very insecure when they look at companies, right? There's they, they trust their gut and then there's like a little bit of bad news and they stop trusting their instincts. Have you ever felt like your instincts betrayed you or anything that you could share about, you know, learning the hard way about what to look at, what you can absolutely not ignore signals that you, you know, you felt them, but you, you just ignored them and you shouldn't have. Yeah. So, um, there's, there's something that actually gets better over time. And that's really, I think, patience through mm-hmm. having seen more situations and having more scar tissue. So I think patience helps in this regard because the more patient one is and the more you've seen, you're less likely to have a knee-jerk reaction to whatever stimulus or negative stimulus you perceive. I or love actually that so that's why I think, uh, I do think that VCs as they get more experience can be a more steady hand, right? I've always, I've been told this before is that our job is to help both minimize the lows and the highs of the entrepreneur, <laughs> right? Um, you know, when things are great, you, you know, you want to take a level-headed approach to say, yeah, it's great, but how we thought about these things. When things are really bad, you have to tell the entrepreneur, look, it's not that bad. We're, we're going to be okay. And that, that comes with a steady hand to this point about um, experience. I think the experience, the reason I started with experience is because I think that hones your instincts too. The two places where I've really been burnt in my venture capital 15-year career 
is one around the people and number two around the science. There are cases where I felt, you know, this entrepreneur is not quite right. <laughs> Something's off. And but for FOMO or because I love the technology in particular, which is something that being having a technical background, I can sink into very easily. That's a problem with nerds then. <laughs> you know, I ignored the people aspect of things, right? I always think that technology, you know, the technology is going to solve everything. I always joke that if, if there's no people, technology would be perfect. But of course, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> but I ignored the instincts about the people and the people turned out to be, you know, yeah. sometimes shady, sometimes not ability to execute and so forth. So that's one area that um, my instincts now play a really strong role. I'd rather walk away if I have issues with people because it's really hard to solve, right? It's not a math problem, right? And sometimes there are no solutions if they're inherently flawed in some ways, right? Yeah. So people, I've been very careful. The second is ignoring data that says the science is not working or the mm -hmm. engineering is not working. And sometimes it's because the founder or the team is obfuscating the real answer. I've gotten that before. Ask a direct answer. You get a different question. In the beginning, you're okay. You might think that they're protective and stuff. But when you see a habitual pattern over time, you have to be alert. Um, or I see the data and I just don't, you know, I'm too optimistic, right? You know, most VCs are glass half full type people. <laughs> and you're like, oh, they'll overcome it. They'll overcome it. But, you know, it, it doesn't happen. And that's okay, actually. That type of failure might be okay, but you, you can't give it 10 years, though. <laughs> you have to give it like <laughs> a year or two before you have to call it as it is. So those are the two cases where I've had the most regrets. Most of the time, I, I don't regret paying up. I don't regret an educated bet. I don't regret a, a technical failure that is candid and transparent because that's what we do for a living. So those are those are glorious failures in my view, yeah. because there's tremendous learning and and all done in a transparent and respectful way. Um, but it's it's where there's, you know, I, I've misread the people or ignored the data. Those are where I fault myself. Yeah. I haven't listened to my instincts or the data. And I think maybe it's like you said, it's all about not making the same mistake twice, right? You made that mistake with the with the team, you made that mistake with the data. And that is one mistake that you would probably not do again. You'll make other mistakes, but maybe not, maybe not that one again. And maybe that's the best that we can hope for, right? Yeah, this is where a team is very valuable. Yeah. Because you can't, one can't expect in their lifetime to have covered all the mistakes. <laughs> but as a team, you might be able to help each other cover 80% of the mistakes <laughs> that one might see in venture. I know it'll never be 100%. So I've got cases where I've brought founders in. And, you know, in my gut, there was something itching about the founder. But then when the rest of my partners engage the founder, you know, they surf, they go, hey, you know, when um, something's off, you know, but maybe that's just me. Maybe you think differently. That's okay. I'm respectful. And then, it, you know, for me, it was like, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's just like, I didn't say anything. And stuff like that is very powerful. And that's why, you know, there is a degree of, of team sport and you want diversity. This gets back to also diversity when we're talking about whether right. it's experiential, gender, um, ethnicity, um, religious background, different people from different backgrounds will have different experiences and different views on things. And 
the amalgamation of all those views, I think, helps reduce some of the single-mindedness or, you know, individually driven mistakes um, that I've encountered. I love this perspective. I 100% agree. It, there are three questions that all Kaufman episodes end with. So are you okay. ready for this? <laughs> I'm racing just, for it. <laughs> you just shoot. Don't think of it. Don't overthink this. So okay. what makes a great VC investor? I think um, staying ahead of the popularity curve. <laughs> love that. Most people chase heat, by the way, right? Very yeah. few people truly invest ahead of the heat. The really good ones, the really good ones are there before you even know about it. It kind of gets back to a FOMO, but yeah. FOMO um, and mind. Yeah, exactly. You're very <laughs> consistent when. <laughs> okay. What advice do you have for our audience of VC investors and innovators? Take on something significant. Take on something significant. Don't, don't be afraid of that. And, and I see too many ventures that are me too or incremental. Mm-hmm. And that's, not, that's truly not the way to greatness. Whether you're the investor or the entrepreneur, it's typically true. If you look at some of our best outcomes, they were always ahead of the curve. They were always bold swinging, you know, aspirations. And, you know, um, it takes a while, but don't get lulled into trying to bat averages. There's nothing about this business that is about average. If you hear this, if you hear the, the, the proverbial, you know, 10% of VCs make, you know, 90% of the profits or 10% of the entrepreneurs make 90%, you, you can't be mean mode or median, right? You'd be right. screwed. Yeah. So by definition, you have to you have to swing for the fence. And I think that's really the way to have a sustainable career, either as an entrepreneur or a venture capitalist in the startup world. Because if you don't strive for significance, you end up with so much less. And that so much less is significantly less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you're trying to play safe, then this is not the right business for you, no, right? No, go buy bonds play portfolio theory in public stocks, whatever you want. But that's not our game. Our game is 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 world changing, right? And, and again, whether it's a business model, whether it's a pricing model, whether it's technology, whether it's whatever, you know, I think you have to swing for greatness. I, I, see, I see too many early stage VCs swing for mediocrity. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, you know, that company did it. I'm going to have two more fast followers try to do the same thing. No. That, that statistically doesn't work. You might get lucky, but you can't create a career out of luckiness. Last one for you. How do you stay sharp? Do you have any books or podcasts or blogs that inspire you? I read a lot of stuff. I, I don't read books, but I, I read a lot of information sources. You know, I, I'm, I'm a prolific web surfer. I watch <laughs> YouTube and all the different medias. So, so the dynamic range of what I read is very broad. And I'd also say that um, in hard tech, and I, again, I'll go back to hard tech, you know, staying close to universities, research, staying close to entrepreneurs that you deem uh, advanced, uh, maybe not entrepreneurs, but um, luminaries in certain fields. Yeah. Um, they could be entrepreneurs, they, they could be academics, they could be in corporate Staying close to their work by, you know, reading up on papers or going to conferences, that's still relevant. Um, you know, at the end of the day in hard tech, we're investing on real substance of technology or science. 
So you can't ignore that. And, and so the closer you are to that, the more likely you're under, you're going to understand what the theoretical limit is, where we are today and what that gap is, and then see if there are a group of people that can help come close the gap uh, in a venturable way. Right. I have two words for you. Yeah. Prepared mind. There we go. Prepared <laughs> mind. Prepared mind. And, and, you know, in our space, you do have to know something about something, right? You're, you're, right. you're not, you won't be able to pick up. I mean, and, and I, I qualify this only for early stage, right? I think when mm -hmm. a company is later stage, there's financials, there's customer testimony. But in the early stage, you do have to have some degree of domain familiarity. I don't think you need to be an expert, but I think you need to be eloquent in the vocabulary and you have to be able to ask the right questions pertaining to that technology or that um, engineering advantage. And so that's what I think creates the defensibility of our sector, right? In the early stage, I think as things, any business progresses to late stage, um, it becomes more easily to analyze it because more data is available. But in the early, when I say early, I'm talking about seed, series A, and probably B, right? Yeah. The prepared mind and having domain knowledgeability, I think are helpful. And that's where I think that, um, you know, our two focus areas are very suitable for our backgrounds, right? Uh, given our engineering backgrounds, uh, we're able to interface with entrepreneurs and, and the luminaries and the experts in the space easier, right? Than if we did have technical backgrounds. And also to help entrepreneurs once we invest, right? You, you sit at the board meeting with more sympathy and empathy for what they're going through when you understand how hard it is to overcome those technical hurdles. And they appreciate that. I've been told point blank, dude, you know, it's like, you get it. You know, you didn't, you didn't, you know, when we failed, you, you, you asked the right questions and you were supportive about the recovery from the failure as opposed to just, you know, crucifying us. Right. Yeah. That's what I was going to say that it's not only that it helps you with conviction, with understanding, with it, with prepared mind, it also is the essence of bringing value to your uh, mm -hmm. founders and entrepreneurs. And it's a virtuous cycle because oftentimes preparedness of mind can come from your entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I get some of my best referrals are from my entrepreneurs because they said, hey, you know, you should be aware of this trend. I'm seeing it everywhere. And these two entrepreneurs or this scientist is the, the luminary in the space and you should go talk to him or her. And then after I do, I'm like, dude, I, I, you know, I want to invest. And, <laughs> and, um, and it's a virtuous cycle, right? A value add, prepared mind and so forth. Well, you're clearly doing something right. We're out of time, but this was, as always, a ton of fun, uh, inspirational and informational, if that's a word in English. So thank you so much. I know you have to run and we will definitely continue this conversation. Thank you. I think you're, you're part of an amazing program and uh, thank you for letting me be part of it. And uh, if anyone of you guys or in your class would like to have some other sessions and stuff like that, you know, Count me in. You're in. All righty. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. <laughs>